So we're doing a series on the Apostles' Creed, and it's good to repeat it. Let us all stand and have the creed up on the overhead, and we can begin. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the communion of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You can sit down. I'm sure when we get to the church, this will be fully explained to you, but the little C Catholic has nothing to do with the Roman Catholic Church, okay? The Catholic means everybody, inclusive, the holy inclusive church. Anyway, uh, today we come to these words that we just uh, went through, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead and was buried, descended to the dead. On the third day he rose again. Well, of course, you can imagine uh, that this might be several weeks on its own. So we're going to pray now because I'm squashing several weeks into one and that requires the Holy Spirit's help. Okay. Lord, we thank you that you've been so present here. And... Lord, we thank you for every sign of your presence in our lives and we pray for your presence now. Dear God, our Father in heaven, come to us through the Spirit as we talk about Jesus the Son. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Good. Okay, got lots of bits of paper today. I'm not sure what I need first. So today, suffered, died, buried and risen, here we come to the heart of the gospel. This is the centerpiece, this is the core, it's the heart of the gospel. Luther said this, crux sola nostra theologica. Good for him. Can anyone translate that? The cross is our soul theology. The cross is our soul theology. In other words, he's saying what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Here we are at the heart of the Christian faith that sets it apart from any other faith because we believe that Jesus died for us. Don't we? Yeah. We believe that Jesus paid the penalty due to us on the cross. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 1, 22. 
for Jews demand signs. In other words, they're looking for something experiential they can see. They're looking for signs. In the 21st century, many people are looking for an experience of religion. The Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. And of course, 21st century Britain is very Greek in that sense, in that we seek wisdom, we seek to understand, we seek to know. And Paul goes on to say, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews. Why? Because it was a disgrace to be crucified. It was an utter disgrace. In fact, it was such a disgrace that Jews could not imagine that their Messiah would be taken captive even, let alone die on a cross as a common criminal. It would be blasphemous to them to even suggest such a thing. Okay, so it was a disgrace. And a folly to the Greeks. In other words, they viewed it as a nonsense. How could this be? It doesn't make sense. Of course, when you understand the gospel fully, it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? But when you first hear bits and pieces, it doesn't make sense. When you hear that God came to be with us as a man, Jesus, as you were learning last week, God is Jesus. People say, rubbish. Did you know that 46% of the population of the United Kingdom think that Jesus was a myth, is a myth, that we're all living, believing a myth. 46%, that's nearly half of the population of this country doesn't think Jesus existed. Isn't that sad? It's so sad. There's a mission field here to tell people that, yes, Jesus not only came from heaven and existed on earth as a man, but he also lived a sinless life in order that he may pay the penalty of our sin. <clears throat> it's an extraordinary story, isn't it? It's an extra extraordinary story. And Paul goes on to say, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. In Jesus Christ is not only God's power, it's also his wisdom. His wisdom out of his love for us. We're not justified and saved by rebirth or filling with the Holy Spirit. We're justified and saved by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It comes first. That's the thing. It comes first. Jesus died on the cross and you appropriate his death to yourself and you say, I claim that death to be the means of my forgiveness. We're right here at the beginning of today and I just want to say that we're going to read a lot of scripture. 
Because I believe Jesus lived. Because I believe Jesus died. And I believe that the gospel records record a historical event with huge spiritual significance for the world. I believe in the scriptures. I don't believe Jesus was a myth. I believe he's a real man and one day I'll see him. And so will you. One day, face to face. What a day that will be. And so, uh, <coughs> objective foundation is the cross of Jesus Christ. And following that, putting our faith in him, we have a subjective experience of being saved. We feel, I know when I gave my heart to Jesus, you know, when I was 11, there was a definite change. There was a feeling, there was an experience. When you get filled with the Spirit, you're basing it on truth in the Bible and then comes the experience. Well, the truth of the Bible says Jesus died for your sin. Jesus died to make you whole. And we're going to go through some of it today. And the motivation of, you know, some people say, how could, how can you believe that God could justly, in his justice, in effect, kill his son. There are a lot of people who find that abhorrent. They find it impossible to agree with, that God should actually allow his son to die or, and turn his face away, that that should be what God did. How can you, how can you believe such stuff, you know? Surely you don't believe that God it was in Jesus dying for you. It doesn't make sense to many people. But for us, it's the heart of the gospel. It's right there. It's the core of what we believe. It's why we're sitting here today, because we have met Jesus on the cross. We've met with this incredible power that changes lives. We've met with the King of Kings crucified for us. Oh, Lord, help us. <laughs> I, I don't know what to say, how to say it, how to express more to you of this incredible event, this objective reality of historic authenticity. Cool, that was good, wasn't it? This objective reality of historical authenticity. That is the cross of Jesus Christ. and the motivation that God had. We all know the motivation, don't we? Because we know the love of God. We met Jesus on the cross and we now know the love of God. And we can quote John 3.16 to anybody, can't we? For God so that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God had a plan. God had a plan to restore humanity to fellowship with himself. God had a plan. Wasn't our plan. We didn't think it up. 
We just responded to it. God had a plan out of his love for us. Such huge love. For a good man, one might die. Possibly. But Jesus expressed the love of God to us in that while we were still sinners, while we were filthy, bad, obnoxious, horrendous people, God loved us and undertook to fulfill this plan. Well, the first thing in the creed that we're going to do today is Pontius Pilate. Do you remember him? Pontius Pilate. says, uh, suffered under Pontius Pilate. Why did the people who got the creed going, why did, why did they think this was important, you know? Why, what is it about this that makes it important? Well, in the Old Testament, in Isaiah, there's this famous chapter, and I'm going to read a bit of it to you. You probably know it very well. This is being prophesied hundreds of years before Jesus actually came to earth. He grew up before God like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Yet surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, Who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of the people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he'd done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. But when his soul makes an offering for guilt, 
he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. What an amazing set of words, don't you think? So clear, so clearly telling us that it was God himself who crushed him. It was God himself who put the iniquity, the sin, the badness of us all piled onto him by God himself. There's no getting around it. There's no getting away from it. God planned it. There's no getting away from it with liberal sanctimoniousness. God crushed him. His only son. The sinless one. And part of that crushing was Pilate. The time with Pilate. And I, I just want to read to you now from the message and just comes a little bit fresh. Pilate was an interesting guy. He was a, uh, a Roman sent to govern this area of the Roman Empire. And uh, he is an interesting guy in the sense that he uh, seems to have had a very clear philosophical understanding. And he was in a very difficult political situation where Rome had uh, subjected the Jews and he was the governor. And he had a difficult province to govern. People didn't like being sent there. It was trouble. Those Jews, they knife people in alleyways. They do all sorts of guerrilla warfare. And it easily, they're easily roused. And they have these religious leaders who rouse them. And he has his career in mind as well as his justice. The call in his head and heart for justice and truth was getting compromised in this <coughs> hard-boiled cauldron of political turmoil. They led Jesus then from Caiaphas to the Roman governor's palace. It was early morning. They themselves didn't enter the palace because they didn't want to be disqualified from eating the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and spoke. What charge do you bring against this man? They said, if you haven't been doing something evil, do you think we'd be here bothering you? Pilate said, you take him, judge him by your law. The Jews said, we're not allowed to kill anyone. Pilate went back into the palace and called for Jesus. He said, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, are you saying this on your own? Or did others tell you this about me? 
Pilate said, Do I look like a Jew? Your people and your high priest turned you over to me. What did you do? My kingdom, said Jesus, doesn't consist of what you see around you. If it did, my followers would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. But I'm not that kind of king. Not the world's kind of king. Then Pilate said, So, are you a king or not? Jesus answered, You tell me. Because I am a king, I was born and entered the world so that I could witness to the truth. Everyone who cares for truth and who has any feeling for the truth recognises my voice. Pilate said, what is truth? Then he went back out to the Jews and told them, I find nothing wrong in this man. It's your custom that I pardon one prisoner at Passover. Do you want me to pardon the king of the Jews? And they shouted back, not this one, but Barabbas. Barabbas was a Jewish freedom fighter. So Pilate took Jesus and had him whipped. The soldiers, having braided a crown from thorns, set it on his head, threw a purple robe over him and approached him. Hail, King of the Jews! And they greeted him with slaps in the face. Pilate went back out again and said to them, I present him to you, but I want you to know that I do not find him guilty of any crime. And Jesus came out wearing the thorn crown and the purple robe. Pilate announced, here he is, the man. When the high priests and police saw him, they shouted in a frenzy, crucify, crucify. Pilate told them, you take him, you crucify him. I find nothing wrong with him. The Jews answered, we have a law. And by that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. When Pilate heard this, he became even more scared. He went back into the palace and said to Jesus, where did you come from? Jesus gave no answer. Pilate said, you won't talk? Don't you know I have the authority to pardon you and the authority to crucify you? Jesus said, you haven't a shred of authority over me except what has been given to you from heaven. That's why the one who betrayed me to you has committed a far greater fault. At this, Pilate tried his best to pardon him, but the Jews shouted him down. If you pardon this man, you're no friend of Caesar's. Anyone setting himself up as king defies Caesar. When Pilate heard those words, he led Jesus outside. He sat down at the judgment seat in the area designated the stone court. It was preparation day for the Passover and the hour was noon and Pilate said to the Jews, here is your king. And they shouted back, kill him, 
Kill him. Crucify him. Pilate said, Am I to crucify your king? The high priest answered, We have no king except Caesar. So Pilate caved in to their demands and he turned Jesus over to be crucified. Yes, he was whipped and beaten, marred, disfigured, as the prophets spoke, he would be. But I think more than that, the injustice of what was done must have been overwhelming him. As Jesus was man and God, And I think that probably the man side of him, as it were, was inside railing against the injustice. And yet at the same time, the God part of him knew that this was his cross to bear. The God part of him knew this was God's plan, his father's plan. He'd been in Gethsemane. He said, look, if it's possible, but it wasn't possible. And now he's in the midst of this plan, this father's plan. And he's being unjustly beaten. Pilate sees something in him, feels something from him. Pilate's struggling with this. He's beginning to think that this man indeed, wow, if if he has come from God, whoever this God is, He must be something special. And he's struggling, holding this in the balance, trying to sort it out until they cry, the final cry, and they say, yeah, you're no friend of Caesar if you let this man proclaim himself king. And if there's one thing that Pilate wanted to be, of course, it was a friend of Caesar's. He didn't want demotion. He didn't want to be kicked out of this job that he was in because he'd only just got it. And he wanted to continue with it. And so there he is struggling with this. One thing occurs to him. I can, I can solve this. And he says, it's your custom in the Passover. And he's wanting them to say, yeah, yeah, we'll set him free. Passover gift. But it doesn't happen. They cry for Barabbas. And for Jesus they cry, crucify. And it's awful non-justice. It's awful politics. It's awful everything about it is awful and wrong. But Jesus knows that he must go through this. If he's to walk away now, if he's to call on 10,000 angels, as the old song has it, he could have called 10,000 angels. Do you know that song? No. Okay. 
Jackie and I know that song. <clears throat> For him to do that was a possibility. He could cry off, surely God in heaven would hear his cry off. But he doesn't. I wonder how many of the people in that crowd crying crucify became Christians later. I wonder how many in that crowd heard about the resurrection. I wonder how many in that crowd would join the Roman soldier at the cross who said, this man truly, truly was innocent. I wonder how many of those people who cried crucify, I wonder how many came to faith in Jesus Christ and that very crucifixion. What mixed emotions you'd have if you'd cried in that crowd, crucify him! What mixed emotions you'd have when later on you discover that it's true, he was the king of kings and is the resurrected Lord. And your cry had helped to push Pilate over the edge and agree to the crucifixion. Your cry had instituted this and you'd feel, surely you'd feel tremendous guilt and yet at the same time, now you knew the plan. You th feel tremendous thankfulness. I wonder how many in that crowd learnt to love the Lord. They'd shouted, crucify too. And so, to the very heart of the matter, the crucifixion itself. And they took Jesus away, carrying his cross. Jesus went out to the place called Skull Hill, in Hebrew, Golgotha, where they crucified him. And with him, two others, one on each side, Jesus in the middle. <clears throat> Pilate wrote a sign and had it placed on the cross. It read, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. <clears throat> Many of the Jews read the sign because the place where Jesus was crucified was right next to the city. And it was written in Hebrew, Latin and Greek. The Jewish high priest objected. Don't write, they said to Pilate, the King of the Jews. Make it, this man said, I am the King of the Jews. And Pilate said, what I've written, I've written. I wonder if Pilate became a believer too. What do you think? It's a possibility, isn't it? He's halfway there at this point. When they crucified him, the Roman soldiers took his clothes and divided them up four ways, 
to each short soldier a fourth. But his robe was seamless, a single piece of weaving. So they said to each other, let's not tear it up. Let's throw dice to see who gets it. This confirmed the scripture that said, they divided up my clothes among them and threw dice for my coat. While the soldiers were looking after themselves, Jesus' mother, his aunt, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene stood at the foot of the cross. Jesus saw his mother and the disciple he loved standing near her. He said to his mother, Woman, here is your son. Then to the disciple, Here is your mother. And from that moment, the disciple accepted her as his own mother. Jesus, seeing that everything had been completed, so scripture might also be complete, then said, I'm thirsty. A jug of sour wine was standing by. Someone put a sponge soaked with the wine on a javelin and lifted it to his mouth. After he took the wine, Jesus said, it's done. It's complete. And bowing his head, he offered up his spirit. Then the Jews, since it was the day of Sabbath preparation, and so the bodies wouldn't stay on the crosses over Sabbath, petitioned Pilate that their legs be broken to speed death and the bodies taken down. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man crucified with Jesus and then the other. And when they got to Jesus, they saw he was already dead. So they didn't break his legs. But one of the soldiers stabbed him in the side with his spear and blood and water gushed out. These things happened, confirming the scripture, not a bone in his body was broken. And other scripture that reads, they will stare at the one they pierced. After all this, Joseph of Arimathea, he was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, because he was intimidated by the Jews. Petitioned Pilate to take the body of Jesus and Pilate gave permission. So Joseph came and took the body. And Nicodemus, who had first come to Jesus at night, came now in broad daylight, carrying a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. And they took Jesus' body and following Jewish burial custom, wrapped it in linen with the spices. There was a garden near the place he was crucified and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been placed. So because it was Sabbath and the tomb was convenient, they placed Jesus in it. And so Jesus dies. And then we might have some questions. First question is, why was the cross necessary? Why was it necessary? Well, because of our Adamic nature, our sinful lives. The second Adam comes to the fight and wins. The cross was necessary because of who we are or were. The cross is necessary because of our iniquity. 
The cross was necessary for Jesus to go through this horrendous death because of us and our sin. It was necessary for him. There was only one way God's love and justice could meet together in one solution. There was only one way. Prefigured throughout the Old Testament with the sacrificial lamb. There was only one way. There must be a sacrificial lamb. A spotless lamb. A sinless lamb. And it was because... we had covered ourselves in sin. And Jesus had to die. No other solution to satisfy God's justice. There was no other way. What makes it so powerful and effective then? Well, because Jesus was sinless. Pilate cried out, I find no fault in this man. I find no fault in him. There is no fault in him, Pilate. That's why you can't find a fault. There is no fault. Throughout his life, he has lived with no fault. You might think that's a bit strange. How could, how could he, you know, not get cross sometimes with, you know, how, how could he have survived teenage years without a rumpus or two? How, how could he have, how, whoa, what's, what sort of, what sort of boy was he then? That he could live in our environment, surrounded by sinful men and remain sinless. How could he do it? Well, we know that he only did what the Father was doing. We know that his antennae, his spiritual antennae, were very focused in on the Father in heaven and what the Father's doing and through the Spirit he would hear. But did he not lose it sometimes? Did he not get cross sometimes? Well, there are hints sometimes. And he calls, when Peter says, never, Lord, and Peter uh, is rebuked, get behind me, Satan. He says things that you think, oh, And then you think about it a bit longer and you realise, hey, actually, there was no sin in that. Actually, you realise there was no sin in the way he dealt with Martha. You realise there was no sin in the way he handled his family when they were knocking on the door. And he was teaching. And his response to that, as they said, come home, Jesus, come home. Dirty stop out. There was no sin in this man. He was pure. Totally, totally pure before God. 
So the cross was necessary because of who we are and was powerfully effective because of who Jesus is. Only he could do this. None of us could. Could we? With our sin and our sinful nature, our lives besmirched with all sorts of stuff. No, we couldn't. But Jesus, in all his purity, in all his holiness, he could. Two Corinthians five twenty one for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He bore our sins in his body on the tree. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. There is this exchange. Our sin is placed on him. It's taken from us, placed on him. And in exchange, we receive what he lived in. A righteous fellowship with the Father. There's an exchange that goes on on the cross. You see, when we're born again, it's not that we are given another coat to wear on top of the one we already have. I was going to bring two coats today, but I forgot. You can, can you imagine, you're wearing one coat, your dirty, filthy coat, and you receive the righteousness of God and you put it on top. And now what God sees is your outer coat, which is the righteousness of God. No, it's not like that. It's not like that at all. Hallelujah. Your sin, your sinful coat, that sin covering that covers you, that you can't get rid of, God rips off and gives you his righteousness. You only ever wear one coat. Previously you wore a coat of sin and death. Sin that would lead you inevitably to spiritual death and whatever hell is. Now you wear, not that coat because it's been ripped off, now you wear a righteousness, a life-giving power that will lead you to heaven. Whatever that looks like. And here in this room are people, when God looks at you, he sees righteousness. Do you understand that? When he looks at you, he sees what Jesus has achieved on the cross for you. He sees your righteousness. You've been made righteous. 
You've been made holy. Sure, your sanctification is a process that goes on through your life. But this one thing is sure, you have made that exchange and from now on you're eternally bound to heaven. This is the power of the cross. There's all sorts of angles to it and people argue over it. I could, you know, this is my problem with this particular preach. I, either I did, you know, a magnificent seminar lasting three or four hours with a lunch break on all the different aspects of the cross. Or I did what I'm doing now, rushing through it so we can praise the King of Kings a bit more in a minute. So, <laughs> he bore our sins. You know what this means, don't you? Atonement. That's what it's called theologically, atonement. Which, you know, Sunday school kids learn as at one, at one-ment. We, we become at one with Heavenly Father again. As in the beginning, before relationship was broken, we are restored at one moment. Jesus on the cross atones for our sin. In other words, he pays for our sin. He does that in order that we might be at one with God again. That we might not fear the judgment seat. That we might not fear when Jesus comes again, but only rejoice in seeing our saviour. That's what it's like to be a Christian. To know the righteousness of Jesus is imputed to me. And so, I've got a few here. Reconciliation is one thing, one aspect of atonement. Reconciliation. We're reconciled. 2 Corinthians 5.19 In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Redemption. How about that? The penalty is paid. I'm set free. I'm released from the prison I was in. I'm redeemed. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How about this? Re regenerated. Recreated. 2 Corinthians 5.17 If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Oh, wonderful words. Don't you think? The old has gone. All that filth is put on the cross. All your bad attitudes, all the, the, the wrong things you've thought and said, all the wrong deeds you've done, everything that is wrong about you, placed on him in order that we might live a different life, a new life. We've been rebirthed, regenerated, recreated. 
Justification, that's another aspect of the atonement. Justification, which in the childhood Bible school I learnt to be just as if I'd never sinned. Justification, just as if I'd never sinned. Imagine that. Coming into the throne room of God, coming into the presence of the King of Kings, knowing that it's just as if I'd never sinned. Because of this death on the cross. Hebrews 10.12 says, By a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And finally, resurrection. Early in the morning on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw the stone was moved away from the entrance. She ran at once to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, breathlessly panting. They took the master from the tomb. We don't know where they put him. Peter and the other disciple left immediately for the tomb. They ran neck and neck. The other disciple got to the tomb first, outrunning Peter and stooping to look in. He saw the pieces of linen cloth lying there, but he didn't go in. Simon Peter arrived after him, entering the tomb and observed the linen cloths lying there. And those used to cover his head not lying with the linen cloths, but separate, neatly folded by itself. Then the other disciple, the one who got there first, went into the tomb, took one look at the evidence, and believed. No one yet knew from the scripture that he had to rise from the dead. The disciples then went back home. But Mary stood outside the tomb weeping and as she wept she knelt to look into the tomb and saw two angels sitting there dressed in white, one at the head, the other at the foot of where Jesus' body had been laid. They said to her, woman why do you weep? They took my master, she said, and I don't know where they put him. After she said this she turned away and saw Jesus standing there. He's alive. He's alive. Forever alive. Next week there'll be ascending time. But for this week, let's grasp hold of this. We believe Jesus died and rose again. Why did he rise again? Because God received his sacrifice as sufficient and complete, as he said on the cross, it's done, it's finished, it's complete. There is nothing more to be done. Nothing more can be done. That has been done. It is complete. There is no missing link. There's no missing bit. It's done. And so God could raise him to life again. And when Mary stood there 
and saw Jesus, she wouldn't have understood everything. There'd be a million theological degrees to follow this event. There'd be people talking about it, writing about it, for century after century after century. There'd be all sorts of stuff written and spoken about this event. She just saw Jesus. He's alive! You know, it was a real Roman death. There was no doubt Jesus was dead. Don't even begin to entertain the thought that maybe he just swooned. Swooned. This was a horrendous thing. To be beaten up like he was beaten up. To the point of dying from the beating. And then to be put on a cross. And Roman soldiers to check that he was dead. Do you think they make mistakes? He was dead all right. But just as he was dead, 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 so now he's alive, alive, alive. Definitely dead. Definitely alive. Oh, said Jesus, look, hands, feet. Do I not eat fish? I like fish. This fish in Iceland... And it's fishy in Iceland. Lots of fish. I like fish. Jesus likes fish. I don't know what they get in the Sea of Galilee. They don't get mackerel, presumably, but something nice and tasty on a, on a barbecue. He's alive! Hallelujah! He's alive forevermore. Death could not hold him. It's finished. It's done. And he's alive. And we are the beneficiaries of it, aren't we? Just want to read a final bit. And then we'll worship the Lord, shall we? Praise his name. Oh, praise his name. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sin. Then those also fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact... Oh, I like that. Not just but, but but in fact. This is the fact of the matter. There used to be this uh, program on on the radio um, when I was growing up. There were all sorts of programs on the radio in the 1950s, these comedy type things. And there was this detective comedy type thing where one of the catch lines was, 
Just give me the facts, man. Just give me the facts. It's a fact. It's a fact. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. It's your inheritance. Eternal life. Because he died. Your sin is gone. Laid on him. He bore all our sins and our sorrows. And he gave us life. Life in relationship with the Father like his. So he's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters because that's what we are. Hallelujah. Because he rose. Lord, we thank you for this crux of our faith. For this crux solar. We stand, Lord, in belief of this. For it's our life and our salvation. Thank you, Lord, for sending Jesus to do this. To go through that in order that we might know you and live with you unafraid. Fear be gone. You are redeemed. Thank you, Lord, for this wonderful resurrection moment that seals and concludes the fullness of your sacrifice for us. Amen.